thank you for coming. Thank you for being here with us. I am really looking forward to this weekend where we can all focus on Christ, on his word, on the topic of gratitude, and just really connect with him, uh, expecting us all to be changed after our time in the word and uh, engaging with the Holy Spirit and one another this weekend. Um, I don't know about you, but I uh, feel like reality shows, reality TV shows are kind of just a part of life now. Um, I remember when they first began, it was like a strange thing to have this window into somebody's lives, but now uh, there's reality TV shows for everything. I just was watching one recently about, you know, glass blowers and glass blowing competitions. There's just reality TV shows for everything. I remember though, watching a show and it must have been at least 10 years ago uh, with my daughters when they were in high school. And it was put out by MTV. I know I don't watch a lot of MTV, but this one was just so engaging. It was called My Super Sweet 16. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that before, but uh, they did this uh, show where they would show these teenagers with very wealthy parents. And these wealthy parents just went all out to make sure that their teenagers had the best sweet 16 birthday party or 15-year-old birthday party or whatever it was. And they would spend extravagant amounts of money on the venue, on the food, on the entertainment, on the guest list, uh, and on the gifts too. And, you know, they ran that show for 95 episodes, 10 years of My Super Sweet 16. And if there was anything you learned from watching that was that those kids were ungrateful. Uh, they were brats. You just would watch with your jaw dropped thinking, my goodness, how can they respond like that? Uh, they have different polls and surveys that they've taken where people vote on, you know, who the, the worst uh, My Super Sweet 16 girl was, who was the most, you know, uh, ungrateful, the brattiest one of all. Uh, coming in at number three, most people rate as a girl named Sophie. Uh, Sophie uh, was just miserable. Her parents spent $180,000 on her birthday party. It was a Moulin Rouge theme, and throughout the whole birthday party, she was miserable. Uh, she was complaining and fussing. She even used profanity to refer to her poor mother, who had worked so hard so that all of this could happen. And throughout the show, she continually reminded people, Sophie gets what Sophie wants. I mean, from start to finish, we all knew that Sophie was going to get what Sophie wanted. Uh, in second place, uh, most people voted for a girl named Yashika. Uh, Yashika was funny. She let the audience know that she could not wear cotton poly blends. Uh, this had nothing to do with Old Testament ceremonial law, <laughs> but she said that she was just too expensive for that. Uh, when her mom presented her with a seven-carat diamond ring for her birthday gift, she looked at it and she said, I may have just gotten a seven-carat diamond ring, but there better be more coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And coming in at number one was a young girl named Audrey. Uh, Audrey, we learned throughout the show, her mother had to take Valium to endure her birthday rage. Uh, before her birthday party, her mother gave her a $67,000 black Lexus as a gift. Well, Audrey began to scream. She screamed because her mother gave it to her before the birthday and not on the birthday. As she was wearing her tiara in front of her friends, she let her mom know that wasn't even the car that I wanted and her mom had ruined everything. I have a little video clip of Audrey. I would love to have them all, but for the sake of time, we just have Audrey. Even though today is my 15th birthday, I don't have enough time to celebrate it because I'm heading over to the final court practice. How do you think practices are gonna go today? It's gonna suck. Because my courts are idiots. Hey, everyone, ow! Oh, we're going this way? What the? Happy birthday! That's yours. That car is dope. Uh, I thought she was gonna get like a Honda or something. <laughs> I just got a party for my 50s, I didn't get a car. <laughs> Happy birthday. No, what the hell? I don't want my car now. Oh, mom. My mom got me my car now. I told her not to get it. I wanted to stay at my party. I didn't want the car. That's not even the car you wanted. She wanted the car, but she didn't want it today. She wanted it on the day of the party. Oh, it's right now. <laughs> I can't believe she's such an idiot. I, she just ruined the whole party. Everything. She just ruined everything. <laughs> Her mother ruined everything. How could she have made such a mistake? Poor Audrey. Well, whether it's uh, people who insist that they get what they want, or ones that would say there better be more, or even girls like Audrey that just feel like right thing, wrong timing, it's obvious that these kids missed the lesson on gratitude, right? I mean, they obviously didn't attend the retreat. The retreat. Their attitude, their actions are wrong. But what about us? Uh, what about us when we aren't genuinely thankful for what God has graced us with? I mean, do we look any less bizarre from heaven's perspective than these entitled teenage girls do? We're going to begin our gratitude retreat with a passage from the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans 1, 18 through 21, and we're going to discover that God takes our gratitude or our lack of gratitude very seriously, probably more seriously than we ever realized. So we're going to spend uh, the next few minutes working through four verses that will kind of uh, unfold to us why, why it is that we must be thankful. So if you haven't turned there, uh, it's in your program, or you can turn there in your Bible or pull it up on your phone, but we're going to look at Romans 1, 18 through 21. Let me read it to you real quick. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, what's going on in the text here is Paul's beginning to unfold the gospel to his audience, to the Romans. If we back up a couple of verses ahead of our text and look at uh, 16 and 17, if you have that in your Bible or on your phone, if not, you can just listen along. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, it referring to the gospel. Uh, he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he begins then in verse 18 in our text to unfold the gospel before the Roman audience uh, by pointing to our need, our need for the gospel. Uh, our great need uh, to give thanks. He says again in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So if we're gonna really answer that question, really know why we should be thankful, we've gotta start by reminding ourselves about how God feels about sin. So the first point is affirm God's hatred of sin. We need to affirm the fact, we've got to really know this and grasp this and get this, that God hates sin. When we affirm something, it's like we're saying yes, we're saying yay, I affirm that. I agree that God hates sin. We know the Bible teaches that God is holy, he's unique, he's separate, he's morally perfect, uh, and that he cannot coexist with sin. A good verse that reminds us of that is Romans or Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Strong language there, reminding us as readers that God hates sin. That was Psalm 5, 4 and 5. Also, uh, Psalm 11, verse 5. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then finally, Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God cannot look at wrong. Uh, that's something that we often forget. And we'll say things like, God can do anything. But God can't do anything. Uh, Habakkuk 1.13 just tells us that God cannot look at wrong. He can't look at wrong, he can't lie, 
and he can't sin. So there are things that God cannot do by his very nature because of his holiness. He cannot sin. He can't violate who he is. Sin is repulsive to sin, to God. And like scholars have said, uh, it's almost as if God is allergic to sin. We know Isaiah 59 2 well. We uh, read this verse a lot at Compass. Isaiah 59 2, that great verse reminding us that our iniquities have separated us from God and our sins have hidden his face from us so that he doesn't hear. Uh, sin separates us all from God because, as Romans 3 23 reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you might say, Yes, I affirm this, I know this, and that's good. But our passage kind of takes it a step further, uh, something that we need to affirm in affirming God's hatred of sin. We got to realize that not only does sin separate us from God, but sin makes God angry. Again, God actually hates sin. Uh, when it says there in Romans 18, the wrath of God, uh, the Greek word for wrath is orge, and it means anger, the anger or the fury of God with sin. And you might think, well, why does sin make God so angry? And to answer that, it's useful to go back and think about the very first sin. Uh, think about Adam and Eve in Genesis in the garden, uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, the first few chapters of our Bible, there was one command that they were given, right? Don't eat from the tree. Don't eat from that one tree. And God said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. We all know that. Uh, but Satan and Eve and Adam disagreed. Uh, they disagreed with God on that, and they thought that they knew better than him. Uh, Genesis 3, 4, and 5, we've heard it before. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the first sin reminds us that God hates sin so much because sin is ultimately a rejection of God. And it's a rejection of his position and his authority as God. Uh, like Satan appealed to Eve there. You will be like God. You'll be on par with God. And you're going to know good and evil. You're going to know just as much as God knows. Uh, in his book, Christian Theology, it's a much-used theology book, Millard Erickson says, uh, simply stated, sin is a failure to let God be God and placing something or someone in God's rightful place of supremacy. So you see, he's saying that sin is failing to let God be God. It's when somebody or something takes the place of God. That is a simple statement of sin. And that somebody can be me. When I take the place of God, when I am more important than God, 
when doing what I want instead of what God wants, that is sin. And that's why God said in his first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And that includes yourself. And God doesn't say that because he wants to be the boss. He says it because he is the boss, right? And it only makes sense. He knows he's the boss. It's not something that he's trying to fabricate. He is the boss. And even though we might not like that, it's true. God is God and we're not. And so when we feel like uh, God's anger, God's fury, God's hatred, God's wrath towards sin is an overreaction, uh, it's just a reminder that we just don't really understand who God is and who we are. My, uh, my daughter got my husband a t-shirt for Father's Day last year, and it's on the t-shirt, uh, a picture of R.C. Sproul, if you've heard of him before, and underneath is a little caption that says, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Now, it's kind of a little trendy thing. You can look it up on YouTube if you want. Just type in Sproul and what's wrong with you people later, and you'll see this little clip. But it's so impactful. Uh, it's almost jarring to realize how erroneous, how off our view of God is. And he explains it well in this YouTube video. But he was at a conference, R.C. Sproul, great theologian, uh, the leader of Legionnaire Ministries. It was a 2014 conference, and they had a Q&A. And someone sent the question in, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when man first sinned was his wrath and punishment so severe and so long-lasting? Uh, so again, the question, since God's so, you know, slow to anger and so patient, why was his reaction to sin so severe and so long-lasting? And uh, R.C. Sproul immediately jumped on the question from the panel of men that were there. And he first said, you know, didn't we just have this question? Like, is this a problem with the church? Are we asking this question again and again? And then he repeated the question. He said that God's punishment for Adam was so severe. I mean, asking with a genuine question there. And then he said it so succinctly. He said that this creature from the dirt defiled the everlasting holy God. And after that, God said, the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, thanatos, that's death in the Greek, that day he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. He had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of a woman. And he said, and the punishment was too severe? And then he literally yelled out, what is wrong with you people? He said, I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the church today. 
He said, we don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. And the question should be, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? Why did God give us so much grace? Why has he given us so much grace? If we have any understanding of our sin and understanding of who God is, that is the question, he said. When we sin against God, anger and wrath is the proper and the fitting response because of who God is, because of his character, his nature, his holiness. And so as the passage says, the wrath of God is being revealed and will ultimately be revealed in the final judgment. Uh, the passage said in verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They push down the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth or believe the truth, but they push it down. It's like somebody who, uh, let's say, is a smoker and they smoke cigarettes and they can say, I know that cigarettes cause lung cancer but I'm going to push that truth down and I'm going to keep on smoking. They suppress the truth. And that's what the passage says here is we suppress the truth about God and we keep on sinning even though we know it's not right. Verses 19 and 20 continue, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's obvious to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely or specifically his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God says he has revealed himself to all of humanity and all of humanity is without excuse. If we're going to really answer that question, why should I be thankful? We have to remember that God is good and he's expressed that goodness. He's made it clear to all humanity. So that's our second point here is acknowledge God's universal goodness. Uh, that's what the text reveals. God is good and he's revealed himself to everybody. It says again, his invisible attributes in verse 20, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. Uh, God's eternal power, that he is the creator, that he's the one that holds all these things together, his divine nature, his divinity, his godlikeness, the fact that he is morally perfect, he is good. We only know what good is because we've been created in his image. He is the source and authority when it comes to all goodness. And he has revealed himself to all of humanity. It's an interesting uh, little play on words in a sense there in verse 20 where it says, His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. So even though he's invisible, this is clear and obvious and all are accountable for this. There is no excuse. You know, and he refers back there to the creation, created things. God is the creator here. 
what God has shown us since the creation of the world. And it helps to step back for a minute and to think about the creation, to think about how big and grand and glorious God is and to kind of get ourselves right when we think about ourselves before him. Uh, we know the first verse in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's our creator. He created the heavens and the earth. I mean, thinking about the heavens alone is mind-blowing. Uh, our immediate heavens, we think of our planet earth and our moon. We think about our sun, which is a star. We think about the planets. Whether there's eight or nine is up for debate. But that's our solar system, right? It's huge. Our solar system is huge. Uh, they say that uh, you can see about 9,000 stars with the naked eye. That's 9,000 other suns that you can see with the naked eye. But telescopes reveal that there are 100 to 400 billion, billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That's our galaxy alone, 100 to 400 billion stars. There are 100 to 500 billion other galaxies, not solar systems, but galaxies in the observable universe. And they say that could be up to 200 sextillion stars. That's a one with 22 zeros after it. And that's a star out there that God has created. There are five to 10 more times stars out there than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. And when we consider that for a second, we realize we're not quite as big or as grand or as great as we might think we are. You know, the old lie, again, you will be like God. Really? You're going to be like God? I don't think so, right? Uh, we know that light is the fastest observable speed in the entire universe. The speed of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. The speed of light, that means that light can travel around the circumference of the earth seven and a half times in one second. It takes light one second to travel from the earth to the moon. One second, 1.3 seconds actually. So if you think light's traveling around the world, the circumference of the world, seven and a half times in one second, Think of how far we are from the moon. It takes 1.3 seconds to get there. Light takes eight minutes, eight minutes to get to the sun. Eight whole minutes to get there. And to Jupiter, it can take, depending on its rotation, anywhere from 35 to 52 minutes to get there. If there were light on the earth and it were to be received by Jupiter, 35 to 52 minutes. The nearest solar system, the nearest star system, the Alpha Centauri star system, which is still in our galaxy, light from here to there would take 4.3 years to get there. 
If we were to open a light here and to see it on Alpha Centauri, 4.3 years to get there. That's how far away it is. Across the Milky Way, just our galaxy, it takes light 100,000 years to travel from one side to the other. To the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest galaxy, it takes two and a half million years for light to get there. The observable universe, it takes light 13.8 billion years. And across the entire universe, they say it takes light 93 million years to travel from one side to the other. Now, that does not mean that God did not create with the appearance of age. But it does mean that's how far out these things actually are. That's how small we are before our God. We know that earth is the third planet from the sun. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Earth is not too close to the sun so that we would get radiation or get too much heat and die. And it's not too far from the sun so that we would be cold and freeze and not be able to live. We have uh, water in a solid, a liquid, and a gas, which has created life. Our earth, our earth alone hosts over 13 million different species of life. 13 million different species of life just on our planet. 13 million. And life is made up of cells. I mean, think about that. Cells. The smallest living thing is a cell. Our human body, our body, my body, your body is made up of over 50 trillion cells. They say there are over 10 billion cells just in your finger. If you were to look at your finger alone, 10 billion cells. God made that. He knows exactly what he's doing with that. Those cells, they come in different shapes and different sizes. Most can only be seen under a microscope, but the cells work together. They work together to perform the jobs that God designed them to do. For example, there are specific cells like heart cells. We have beating hearts. Us as humans created in the image of God, we have beating hearts, and our hearts beat about 100,000 times per day. 100,000 times per day, our heart beats, and it pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood per day. You know what a gallon milk container looks like, right? 2,000 of those per day. Uh, The heart, it exerts the force of squeezing a tennis ball every second for every of every day, 24 hours a day for our entire lifetime. The human heart beats over two and a half billion times in the average life. And God holds that all together. And you know, all those cells, they're still smaller than that. Cells are made up of molecules, right? Even smaller molecules. God designed that. Molecules, groups of atoms, everything in the universe being made up of these groups of atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, uh, protons and neutrons held uh, together by quarks and gluons that make up the entire universe. These atoms are actually 99.9% empty space. If you were to look at the nucleus of an atom, it's like a peanut 
on a baseball field with something the size of Angel Stadium, the electron, orbiting around us. And that's what atoms are. Everything we touch and feel and see and know and experience is made up of these atoms that are 99.9% empty space. God, right? He's God. He knows what he's doing. Even though there are five to ten times more stars in the universe than grains of sand on all the shores of the sea, remember uh, ten sextillion stars? If you took all those stars, the ten sextillion stars, and you put them all together as atoms, that many atoms wouldn't even make up one of the grains of sand. How amazing is God, right? How humbling this verse is to remind us that he is the creator. Who do we think we are, right? And like R.C. Sproul would say, what's wrong with us? When we get our thinking so self-oriented, so on ourselves and so off of God. Psalm 147.4 says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. All of them. Because he's God. He made them. And then in Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, the psalmist there saying, I see your finger. I see this great glory. I realize how grandiose and holy and magnificent and glorious you are. And yet you care about us. It's amazing. Colossians 1.17, uh, speaking of Jesus, actually, in Colossians 1.17, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the entire universe, he holds it all together. Were he to let go of it for one microsecond, it would all blow up. He holds it all together. He knows exactly what he's doing. We are not God. We are far from being God. And we are foolish. We're just as foolish as those entitled girls in my sweet 16. When we think we know what we're doing and we have the right to demand what we want. You might be saying, yeah, but you don't understand I've been through so much. I'm suffering such great pain. I can't be grateful, thankful. You say that if Jesus were to not hold everything together, it would all blow up. Well, I wish it would blow up because it's hard for me and it would be better if he were to blow things up. Well, you know, there was someone that felt the same way. The scripture records. That's Job. Uh, if you look at Job, in Job chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, so uh, discouraged by his 
troublesome circumstances. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not see it, nor light shine upon it. And if you read from Job chapter 3 on, it goes on and on and on and on. Where Job said, it would have been better had I not been born. And then we get to the end of Job, where God shows up. And God shows up in Job 38. Job 38, 1 through 7, it says, The Lord, he answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Remember the enemy, Satan, saying to Eve, You will be like God, knowing good and evil? God's saying to Job, You don't have knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Then God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, right? Why the earth was placed where it was placed and why the dimensions of the earth are what they are. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When the angels rejoiced in the creation of God and God goes on and on and on. And Job responds in Job 42 verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job getting his thinking straightened out by God himself and saying, I was wrong. Who am I? How dare I stand here before God and say it would be better off that I was not born because I'm not getting things the way that I want them. God saying, really, Job, who are you? How dare you say those things? God has revealed himself to all of us. And not only has he revealed himself to us, but he is good. He's good to the righteous and he's good even to the wicked. In Acts 14, 16, and 17, uh, Paul uh, speaking there, in Acts 14, 16, and 17, Paul says in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. So something that they would all know him by. For he did good. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul saying, God has been good to you. He's given you rain. He's given you food. He's given you good things. Even to those who are outside of Christ, God has been very good to all people. He causes again his son to shine on the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus even said that in Luke 6.35. Jesus, when he was encouraging us to love our enemies, in the end of Luke 6.35, he says, 
God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is unkind to the ungrateful and the evil. So we all, every single one of us, is without excuse. That's what the scripture says. Yes, life is hard, but God is good. And we aren't to get those two confused. The passage goes on in verse 21. Although they knew God, so they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this is the key for us here. Knowing God, knowledge about God is not sufficient. That's what the text says. Although they knew God, although they said, yes, there is a God, they knew that there was a God, it wasn't sufficient because they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. If you don't glorify God, honor him as God, or give him thanks, you deserve his wrath and his judgment. That's what the text says. That's our third point. Realize your ingratitude, your ingratitude, my ingratitude, our ingratitude, it deserves God's judgment. Our ingratitude deserves God's judgment. We don't think about that as often as we should. Uh, We think about things like the Ten Commandments. You know, when we're thinking about the gospel or thinking about sin or thinking about, you know, what's right and what's wrong, we think about do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, honor your mother and father, and that's great and good. But we forget that failure to thank God is a sin that is worthy of eternal separation from him. That's what this text says. A failure to thank God makes us guilty before him and causes him to be angry with us. Because if we're not thanking God, we're usurping his place as God. We are in sin. We see this in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. Uh, where Paul, writing to Timothy, says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. These are sins. It is a sin to be ungrateful. So if we want to just answer the question to our topic, in a sense, for tonight, uh, why be thankful? Why be thankful? We are to be thankful because it is a sin against God to fail to do so. Every single human is responsible to be thankful to God because a failure to do so is a sin against him. Psalm 717 says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. That's Psalm 717. His righteousness, because he's righteous, it is owed to him that we give him thanks. And I will sing praises to the name of the Lord Most High. And then our theme verse, 
1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what God wants us to do. If you want to know what the will of God is, it's that you give thanks, that you give thanks to him in all circumstances. Uh, that word thanks there in the Greek in our passage in the first Thessalonians 5.18 is the Greek verb eucharisto. Uh, it's the same word that's used in Romans 1.21 when they did not give those thanks. Same word. And it means to express appreciation for. Uh, express appreciation for benefits or blessings. If we fail to express appreciation for the benefits and the blessings that God has given to us, we're sin. We're in sin. And what we're doing is a sin worthy of receiving his judgment. When we fail to give thanks to God, it reveals that we think we deserve what we have. We think it belongs to us. We're entitled to it. But that's not what the scripture says. For example, James 1, 17 and 18. Don't be deceived. This is something you can be deceived on, it says. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. It's from God. It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, you know, some of you, some of us, including me, might feel like uh, not only we deserve the things that we have, but we deserve more than what we have. We might think that. I'm I, not saying to raise your hand, but I've been guilty of thinking I deserve more than what I have. And if you're reading through the DVR with us, uh, we read through number 16 this morning, uh, beginning with Korah, uh, who rebelled against God in the same way. Uh, he was a Levite. He served in God's service there, and he wanted more. He wanted Moses' role. And Moses said to him, is it not enough that you get to be a Levite? You want the priesthood now? And God judged him severely because he thought he deserved more. He thought he was being cheated. He thought that he should have more than what he had. Now remember what R.C. Sproul said, we deserve Thanatos. We deserve death. That's what Romans 6.23 says, the wages, the paycheck, what you've earned. When I go to get my paycheck, I've earned death. The wages of sin is death. That's what I've earned. If I want to get what I deserve, I deserve death. And yet, foolishly, I'll begin to think that not only do I deserve everything I have, but I deserve more. And that's when I'm suppressing the truth, when I'm stuffing down the truth, because the truth is I have more than I deserve. I have far more than I deserve. So the fourth and final point here is let's just determined to be thankful, right? I mean, it's pretty clear that God wants us to be thankful and we're responsible to be thankful. So let's determine to be thankful. 
Uh, listen to Psalm 56:12. It says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. My vows to you, what I must do, what I'm obligated to do is to be thankful. Let me give you four super quick ways that we can start our thankful journey, that we can begin this process that we're going to explore throughout the whole weekend. And the first one there, the first A is just stop comparing. Please, let's stop comparing. Don't look at how much others have and compare that to what you have and think that you deserve more, right? Think that you've been cheated. And you know what? Don't do the other thing either. Don't look at other people and say, well, you should be thankful because you have so much more than them. That doesn't make sense either. Where in the Bible does it ever tell us to compare ourselves to other people to assess how blessed we are or our obligation to be grateful to God? We shouldn't compare ourselves to people who have more, and we shouldn't compare ourselves to people who have less. There's that tendency there, and we've got to stop. It makes no sense. Uh, Paul talked about this to the Corinthians as they were erring. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. He's saying when you're comparing yourselves with each other, you're kind of an idiot, right? I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. You're without understanding. That's not a good idea. Uh, they would compare teachers. They would, you know, compare this guy to that guy and how much he had versus how much he had. And Paul said, you need to stop. Look at Christ. Look at Christ and be thankful for all that you have in Christ. Anything less than that is absolutely foolish. And you know what? Even if you have the worst life of anybody on the entire planet, you have the absolute worst you compare yourself to everybody on the planet and yours is the worst, you're still obligated to be thankful to God. You still owe thanks to God. And it is a sin for you not to be grateful. Think about uh, John 21 verses 21 and 22 when uh, Peter was talking to Jesus and Jesus had revealed to Peter that he was going to experience a very painful death. Uh, and Peter said to Jesus in John 21, 21, uh, looking at John, Peter said, what about him? What about John? And Jesus answered him in John 21, 22, hey, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's it to you? Follow me. Jesus saying, really? Uh, why do you care about my plan for John? This is my plan for you. And we need to be grateful. We need to be thankful in whatever plan it is that God has given us. No comparing. No comparing, period. You know what causes you to compare. And whatever it is, stop. Stop the comparing. Second one, set realistic expectations set realistic expectations. We all know when we have unrealistic expectations, we become ungrateful. When we say, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, we don't get it done, right? We don't get all that stuff done, and then we become ungrateful, and we become upset. 
We become unthankful. We have to have realistic expectations. And the expectation is this. This world is hard. And we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be let down. And that's reality. That's a realistic expectation. That's what Jesus said. John 16, In this world you will have tribulation. Right. There's your realistic explanation. It's going to be hard in this world. So when we have a realistic expectation, we're not as disappointed or ungrateful or let down when things don't go the way we want. We don't end up with unrealistic expectations of other people, unrealistic expectations of ourselves, and even unrealistic expectations of God based on what we think should happen and the way that we think things should work. And those ridiculous and unrealistic expectations breed ingratitude. So we need to be realistic. Third, third is we need to stamp out self-pity. We need to stamp out that self-pity where we feel sorry for ourselves because of how much we've suffered. That's what self-pity is, self-me, and pity is pity me because things are really bad for me. We got to stamp that out, just like you stamp out a fire. You got to stamp that out. Because if we don't, that self-pity will stamp out or extinguish our gratitude. That self-pity will just destroy our gratitude. And we've got to stamp it out first. You know, remember from the beginning, our super sweet 16 girls, you know, I get, Sophie gets what Sophie wants, right? Or there better be more than that seven carat diamond ring. Or you know what, I wanted that car, but not at this time, right? The self-pity, we think that's ridiculous. We look at those things and we think you girls are ridiculous. But our self-pity, I guarantee you, is just as foolish looking from heaven's perspective. We just don't see it that way. The girls didn't see it that way. They thought that they were entitled to these things. And whatever it is that we're dealing with, we feel entitled to. And that rears its ugly head when we begin to show signs of self pity. I feel sorry for myself. Listen to what uh, Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Here's your realistic expectation, right? At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When you're suffering, when you have hard times, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard like it's something strange, but instead rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Guess what? Jesus suffered. You're suffering. It's okay. Jesus suffered. And you can share in his sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus suffered. It's okay to suffer. It's okay. We shouldn't have self-pity. Jesus didn't have self-pity. Instead, what did he do? Instead of pitying himself and focusing on himself, he focused on others. And that's the perfect antidote for self-pity, is to focus on other people. Focus on others. Jesus gave his life for others. 
instead of feeling sorry for himself. And he calls us to do the same. We're to give our life for others. We're to focus on others. So if we want to be more grateful and have less of a focus on self-pity, a great way to do that is by focusing on others. And the last one, no-brainer, super easy. Start thanking God for every good thing. Right now, let's do it tonight. Let's all, as a pack of friends here, say we're a group, we're a tribe of friends, right? And we're going to make a commitment to ourselves that we're literally going to be people who start thanking God for every good thing. We're going to do that. We're going to be that way. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to make a change. And as we start thanking him and thanking him and being more thankful and being more grateful, we become grateful from the inside out. We can become grateful people. Remember little Audrey with her tiara screaming about the car? It was the wrong day. Well, actually, she said it wasn't the car she wanted. You know, I was thinking about that, thinking, poor Audrey. (laughs) Not in that way, not in that way. Thinking, poor Audrey, though, she must have been horrified, right? To think that that was filmed, captured on video, national TV. Everybody could see that broadcast for years over and over and over again. I got the clip on YouTube, right? Well, I found they had something uh, called After Party, Uh, It's MTV after party where they go later, months, years later, and they talk to the Sweet 16 girls. And they say, would you change anything? Oh, I'm thinking, poor Audrey. I mean, I wonder if they had her at the after party. And sure enough, they did. Audrey's after party. Audrey, would you change anything? And Audrey said, if I could change one thing I did or said on Sweet 16... I wouldn't change anything. Wow, right? That's what I thought. Really? Okay. I don't feel sorry for you, right? You wouldn't change anything? I mean, let's not do that ourselves, right? As we're sitting here tonight, uh, beginning our gratitude retreat, uh, thinking about these things, thinking about the fact that we need to be thankful, let's not foolishly be like Audrey saying, I don't need to change anything. I don't need to change anything. I wouldn't change anything. Because when it comes to being grateful and giving thanks, I guarantee you, every single one of us, and I say us, I highly include myself here, every single one of us can do better, right? We can all do better. We can learn from Audrey. The great thing is that although our failures are recorded in a sense, they're recorded and God can see the tapes anytime he wants to. We know the promise of 1 John 1, 9. We've been studying it in Bible study for months now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we go to him tonight and say, God, I am so sorry for my ungrateful, my unthankful, my self-focused attitude. Please forgive me and help me to do better. He will erase the tapes. 
How amazing is that? God will wash those files away from our account. And we can choose to change. It takes work, but we can choose to change. And with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we can actually become women who are known not only on earth, but in heaven as women of gratitude. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to have this retreat. We're so excited and so thankful and so grateful, Lord. God, um, please help us all, Lord. Help us all just to really get real with you this weekend. God, we, we've had a hard year. We've had a, a long and tough year. There's been a lot of disappointments, a lot of discouragements, a lot of things to wear us down, Lord. But God, we just want to really connect with you and come clean before you this weekend. God, thank you for this reminder in Romans 1.18 about the fact that you hate sin. And not only does it separate us from you, but you're angry with our sin. God, help us to remember that it's important that we don't forget that truth. God, you are God. We're not even close to God. We, we don't even stand a candle before you, Lord. You're this amazing creator that holds everything together. Lord, in our foolishness, we've demanded, we've expected, we've been unappreciative, and we're so sorry. God, I, I pray that we would just truly repent from our sin of ingratitude and that we would determine that we are going to be thankful. And God, we need your help. We need your help. We know we can do it over the next couple of days, but we need your Holy Spirit to really work something new within us. I pray, God, as we explore this topic again uh, in the morning with Carlin, and then again tomorrow night and again on Sunday, I pray, God, please make a difference in us. I pray that when we go home at the end of this weekend, that everybody around us, uh, from our husbands, our kids, the people under our own roof, uh, to the people in our community, our church, that they would see a difference. They would see something happen to you that weekend. You are so grateful now. God, please, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for this community of women, these amazing women that I get to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus with. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.